I'm honored to be with you wherever you are, if you're accessing us through phone or tablet or on your TV, or whether you're at your house, wherever you are, I just want to say thank you for tuning in to our service and to the sermon here this morning. But before we read our text in John chapter 4 this week, I just wanted to pause in the midst of all of the chaos that is going on at Walmart right now. Uh, I just wanted to pause just with the chaos of life, and I just sat back for just a moment, and I wanted to ask the Lord uh, what he would like me to communicate to Christians and to non-Christians in this time. To Christians who may be watching this video, I would encourage you to realize that this is not time to be fearful, uh, but rather time to shine. This is time not to be afraid, but rather to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Being the hands and feet of Jesus in this time means that we are to be, as we saw last week, the salt of the earth, that we are to create a thirst for the things of God in the world, and that we are to be the light of the world, revealing truth, the truth of God, to our neighbors, to our families, to our friends, through our love, through our word, and through our action. And also to Christians, as I mentioned already, this is not time to panic, but this is time to pray. I will encourage you in this season to petition the Lord on behalf of our nation, on behalf of our family and friends, on behalf of our church, to pray for the vulnerable, to pray for protection for people that are sick at this time. And let us pray that this season of our nation turns, the, turns people to the Lord. And as always, I feel like it is always appropriate to remind us of truth in this hour. This comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1, and it begins in verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purposes and grace, which is granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought forth life and immortality to light through the gospel. And to those that are listening to this broadcast, to those who are, do not know where they stand with Jesus Christ, who are unsure of where they, if they believe in Christianity, believe in Jesus, I would encourage you to realize that the fact that you're watching this video at this very hour is God prompting you to uh, maybe believe in the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and to surrender to Him. Amen. As for our time in the Word, uh, today we'll be in John chapter 4, and at home you can click your way there on your phone or in your Bible. But uh, to be honest, even as I was preparing this message, I'm not sure if this message this morning is timely or not. But it is a message that the Lord has placed upon my heart for for two months now, and if I believe that the Lord is sovereign and in control, which I do, I believe that this is maybe timely in His way. And what I see at the heart of this message, at the heart of this passage, is the gospel. If you were here last week and we talked about why, why we should share and tell others about Jesus. And what we said is that through faith, that we, our identity now has changed. That we are to be the salt of the earth. We are commissioned to create a thirst for the things of God. But we are also the light of the world. That we are meant to reveal the truth of God through our life and through our love and through our 
word. So as whereas last week we described why, this week we're just talking about how. How do we actually tell other people about Jesus? I'm going to ask you that question wherever you are. How do you actually communicate with words about Jesus Christ? You know, oftentimes we look to the latest and greatest curriculum or the latest and greatest guru or program or gospel tracks or to Billy Graham. But this question, the answer to this question, how do we actually tell others about Jesus, this question, the answer to this question, I should say, is actually found in the scripture itself. Today I hope to unpack for us Jesus' plan for evangelism, how he shared the truth, how he revealed the gospel to people that he encountered, and then transport that to us here today. What I see is it breaks down into four main steps. What Jesus did was initiation, confrontation, revelation, and then he watched for transformation in the lives of the people that he shared with. Today we'll be reading John chapter 4, and I'll be reading the four main sections, the four steps that I see in John 4, and we will begin with verse 3. Jesus left Judea and went away again into Galilee, he had passed through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria named Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his own son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus... Being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by that well, and it was about the sixth hour. And there came a woman from Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you only knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 13, And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of the water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said urgently, Sir, give me this water. So I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way back here to draw. And he said to her, Go, and call your husband and come here. The woman, Samaritan woman, said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said correctly. Verse 19, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Verse 26, and he said to her, I who speak to you am he. Then skip down in your Bibles to verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all of the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he, answered, and he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard our, for ourselves and know that this is the one. He is indeed the Savior of the world. Pause for just a second. 
wherever you are, I want you to pause and I want you to think of a face. Think of somebody in your life that you know is not a believer in Jesus Christ. Who is it? Is it someone at school? Someone at work? Someone in your family? A friend, a parent, or a child? I want you to picture a face of a non-believer and I want you to actually keep that face in your mind for the rest of our conversation. Because how should you actually tell them about Jesus? With words, yes, we know that we're supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, creating a thirst for God and revealing truth with our actions and with our love. But how do we actually, with words, communicate the love of the gospel, the love of Jesus, that would make sense to them? How do we present the life-giving gospel, the eternity-altering truth that Jesus came and he died for my sin and that if you believe in him, that you will be saved? How do we communicate that to the hopeless of the world. If you struggle to even answer that question in the slightest, then I would imagine that you are not alone. Every Christian has ever lived has struggled with the question, how do we actually communicate the gospel to the lost? But there's a fundamental problem that we know we should go. We know that we should go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. But so many times we feel so inadequate We feel like we do not know enough, that we aren't brave enough, that we aren't strong enough to actually share our faith with the lost in our lives. If you feel inadequate, then I want to put a picture in your mind. If Jesus would use a fisherman who casts nets for a living, if Jesus would use a fisherman to go and communicate the gospel to the ends of the earth and see thousands of people come to him, then the Lord could use any one of us. If the Lord would use an uneducated, uh, frail, outcast, somebody who betrayed him at a moment's notice, if he could use them, then he can use you and any of us. So the question we seek to answer today is, how do we actually go? How do we actually tell people about Jesus? This question bothered me a lot about 12 years ago, this question was keeping me up late at night. I had heard enough preacher guilt trips, enough of the evangelism gimmicks and rules and programs and tracks, and I remember just feeling convicted. How do we actually just communicate the truth of the gospel in an understandable way that it would make sense to a non-believer? So 12 years ago, when I was... I don't know, 20, 21, 22, I am a little older than that, uh, 12 years later. But I remember 12 years ago, I was so uh, bothered by this idea that I uh, read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, cover to cover, to uncover this issue of how do we actually communicate the gospel to a non-believer. I dissected stories like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, the disciples... In John chapter 1, the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, and even the criminal on the cross to uncover the answer to the question, how do we communicate the truth of the gospel? And what I found out, something interesting. What I found out is that Jesus uses the same basic four steps over and over again to communicate the truth of the gospel despite his circumstances. Jesus' steps for evangelism boil down to four main things. Step number one is initiation. 
how do we actually begin a relationship with the non-believers? Step number two, for lack of a better term, is confrontation. How do we take the lies that a non-believer believes, and how do we actually replace those lies with truth? Step number three was revelation. What I mean by that is the communication of Jesus as the Savior of the world. How do we present the gospel in an understandable way? And step number four is transformation. After we have shared, after we have initiated, after we have shared the gospel, what should we look for in their lives? But before we start going out into the culture, before we start uh, going after people and maybe clubbing people with Jesus, hopefully we don't do that, uh, before we do that, I have four ground rules that I would like to share when it comes to presenting the gospel. Uh, I feel like a coach that before we start organizing plays, we explain the rules. Ground rule number one for telling people about Jesus is that sharing the gospel is a process. That evangelism is a process. We have this false idea in especially evangelical uh, churches that people must be converted now. Like as soon as the, I share the gospel, they have to do it now. But really, realistically speaking, even in Jesus' own ministry, that people had to oftentimes process it. They had to think about it. So we must remember that evangelism is a process. It's not just an instantaneous thing. Ground rule number two is that telling others about Jesus is best done in relationship. It's done, best done in a relationship of love. Ground rule number three that while we share the gospel, while we share about Jesus, we must be dependent on the Spirit. Sometimes it's easy to try to have everything all figured out. But all the planning and all the studying and all the preparing and all the thoughts cannot replace us being dependent on the Spirit while we share. And then ground rule number four is to not put too much pressure on yourself. We do have to remember that when we actually go and present the gospel, we must remember that God is still sovereign in that place, that God is still in control, and that if we are dependent on Him, that hopefully through prayer and through our presentation, that people will actually be converted to Him. So with all that out of the way, we go back to John chapter 4. Let us now, not in a 21st century context with a TV or a smartphone or a tablet, they didn't have those things back then, believe it or not, uh, but that we would go from the 21st century and we would actually go into the 1st century A.D. and we would see a man who is not supposed to be talking to this Samaritan. What I find amazing is that Jesus does not see what society sees. He sees a person that is valuable, that is worthy to be saved from her sin. So notice with me, how does Jesus actually initiate telling her about the good news. Verse 3. Jesus left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he passed through Samaria. Notice passed through. Not around like was normal. But he passed through Samaria. So he came to a city of, in Samaria called Sychar. Near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey was sitting thus by the well. It was the sixth hour of the day. And there came a woman from Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it? I can just imagine her tone. How is it that you, being a Jewish 
person asking me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Step number one for sharing the gospel is initiation. How does Jesus initiate a relationship with this Samaritan woman? What is he being? He is being counterculture. He's being different than what the culture should say he does. That's what he says in verse 9. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Jesus wasn't even supposed to talk to her. He was supposed to shun her or shame her or treat her poorly. But instead, Jesus does not see somebody who is subhuman or someone who is below him. But rather, Jesus sees her as a soul worthy to be saved, worthy to experience the love of God, the life-giving, eternity-altering gospel which we find is to be in him. So Jesus is sitting there at this well, Jacob's well. He sees this, weary from his journey, sees a Samaritan woman coming up to him, and he sees a soul that is thirsty, starving and thirsting for truth. Let's go back to the beginning. I asked you to put a face in your mind. Who is the face that you picture of somebody who is an unbeliever in your life? Their soul is thirsty. Their soul needs Jesus. Do you see them as Jesus sees them? Do you see them through the lens of a Savior of love and of grace? Or do we only see them as an inconvenience or as somebody be fearful or somebody of obligation or guilt? Step number one is initiation. Ask yourself if you do not have a relationship with this non-believer... A redemptive relationship, I would say, is how do you begin a relationship with him? Step number two, for lack of a better term, is confrontation with truth, replacing lies with truth. Notice verse 13. What does he confront her about? Jesus answered and said, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give them will become in them a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to her, Sir, please, give me this drink so I will not be thirsty, nor come all this way to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said, Yes, you are correct. I ha- you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said correctly. The woman said to her, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, Jesus in verse 16 gets real, like all up in her bubble. He kind of pops her mind. What does he say to her? He says, go call your husband. And what does she say? Jesus calls her out on the one area that she's probably trying to hide from this Jewish man. And what what do we find? That she does not have one husband or two husbands, three or four or five. But she's had five husbands in her life, and now the man that she has is not. What is she looking for? I pose to you that she is looking for something to satisfy the thirstiness of her soul. She's looking for somebody to quench her inner spirit. So let me ask you a question. What is the one thing, or what are the, maybe the two things that are preventing this woman from Samaria from believing in Jesus? 
I would say number one is obvious, is ignorance. She doesn't know what she doesn't know. Little does she know that this guy named Jesus, which is the Old Testament name of Joshua, little does she know that this man named Jesus is the Savior of the world. She just thinks he's another Jewish man. She has no idea that if she believes in him, that if she surrendered to him, that she would be saved. So in one set, in one idea, segment, the reason she doesn't believe is because of ignorance. She doesn't know what she doesn't know. I think sometimes we take this idea for granted. We think that the last people on the face of the earth to hear about Jesus and the gospel are those people living in indigenous jungles in the far-reaching corners of the globe. But there's a reality that even here in America, even in the Bible Belt, even when there's a church in every corner, even with sermons galore on YouTube, that there are countless people living right here in Huntsville, Alabama, that do not know anything about Jesus. Probably they've heard the name, but they have no idea what he stood for. Many people think that he's a famous teacher or prophet or a good person. They have little or no idea that he is the savior of the world, that he has come and that he has died to pay for their sin, that if they would believe and surrender to him, that they would be saved. There are so many countless people that are just unknowing, ignorant to the truth. Let us not just think that these people are out there, but they're right here. They're in our schools. They're, in our, they're at our work. They're in our family, even in our, as our friends. If you're still skeptical that people here can live in Huntsville, Alabama and not know who Jesus is. About two months ago, I had a friend conduct an experiment. He lives right here in Huntsville, Alabama. And he wanted to know if people were ignorant about the gospel, if they knew what Jesus stood for. So this man asked ten different people in the community, right here in Huntsville, he asked a simple question, what is the gospel? Yes, what is the gospel? He asked ten people, and only three had any form of answer whatsoever. And one of them was a doctor, and the doctor said that he simply wasn't a theologian. Fortunately, being a theologian is not required to understand that Jesus is your Savior. He's the Savior of the world who came and he died for the sins of all. And then he offers to us salvation as a gift that we only open by faith in him. So we see this woman in John chapter 4. The first reason why she is unbelieving is because she just doesn't know what she doesn't know. But I believe, number two, the real reason why she doesn't believe is because what I call a spiritual crutch. That I believe every human being that has ever lived, out, that does not know Christ, has a spiritual hole that only God is meant to fill. So what we do, instead of turning to Jesus, we find something that we think will quench that thirst, and we stuff it deeper and deeper, tighter and tighter, trying to erase the thirst in that only Jesus can quench. And who, what is her crutch that... Jesus points out, it's verse 16, I'll revisit it very quickly. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right, for you've correctly said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. I would just imagine being there by the well. (laughs) 
That must have been a strange thing for this woman who has no idea who this guy is to hear that this guy says, that, oh, by the way, you've had five husbands. But why would, why, why would Jesus point out to her that she has these men in her life? When I believe that Jesus is saying to her that she is seeking to find something that is trying to quench the thirst in her soul. She seeks for men to quench the thirst in her soul that only Jesus can really fulfill. And when the first husband doesn't work, she finds a second, and then she finds a third, and then she finds a fourth, until she finds a fifth. She is searching, yearning, desiring something to just quench her soul. This asks, I have to ask the question then. I believe every person that's ever lived has this very thing, that we have a hole in our soul that only God can quench. And so what we do, I call it a spiritual crutch, what we do is then we fill that hole with everything but Jesus until we realize that Jesus is the only thing to quench our souls. So what are some of the things that people rely on to quench their thirst? Number one is intellect. People, especially in this town, people rely on what they can understand instead of trusting God. So when the gospel doesn't make sense to them, then they turn away. But let's just be real about intellect. The gospel, that Jesus would come and he would die, the gospel doesn't really make sense. Grace and mercy do not make sense, especially unmerited grace and mercy. What makes sense is justice. What makes sense is karma, that I get what I deserve. That makes sense to us in our intellectual basis, so no wonder people would rely on their intellect to turn away from Jesus. Another crutch, crutch is money. Some people trust in money rather than trusting in God, so they take their bank account and they stuff it as full as they possibly can, only realizing that having enough is never satisfying, because you'll never have enough. This is the issue with the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. That is why Jesus tells him to go and sell everything you have. Another crutch is religion. Some people think they can earn their way to heaven. They're trying to quench the thirst of their soul with by being good enough to earn heaven. This is the problem in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, as Jesus says to him very clearly, Are you not the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? And what does he say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever would believe it in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Some other crutches that people fill this God-shaped hole with is just rebellion and sin. Some people don't want to turn to Jesus because they want to do what they want to do. Some people turn away from Jesus because it's not the popular thing to do, and it's not, and it never will be. So step number one is initiation, and then step number two is to confront people's crutch. The reason that they are not believing in Jesus is to replace that with the truth of the gospel. To tell you a quick story, I had a seminary professor in seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, he shared this story in class, and I'll never forget it. He was, his name was Dr. Hannah, my seminary, my seminary professor, and he shared a story of his secular supervising professor as he was finishing up his dissertation, his PhD dissertation, and he had this friendship with his secular professor, and he one day began to confront this 
his supervisor with the gospel. Now, what is interesting about his supervising professor is that this man was a, at times, it was an agnostic, and this man was actually dying of AIDS. And Dr. Hannah saw that this man's health was failing. And he went up to him and asked him a simple question and said, you know, you know all the truth, you know the gospel, you know about Jesus, I've shared it with you, why don't you just believe and turn to him? And his professor said two reasons. Number one, it's because it's not the popular thing to do. And number two, if I believe in him, then I have to do what he tells me. It's true. That is a real-life example of a spiritual crush. The reason that somebody will not believe is because they would rather sin and they would rather be concerned with what the culture thinks rather than actually believing in Jesus Christ. But then notice, so step number one's initiation. He initiates a relationship with this Samaritan woman by being counterculture. He then confronts her sin, her spiritual crush, with truth that it is failing, that men are leaving her thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. And then step number three, he reveals revelation that he is the Savior and the Messiah of the world. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, here in a few weeks, we'll probably start doing the Gospel of John, and I will really unpack verses 25 and 26, because it is just absolutely full. But when she says, just for the sake of simplicity, when she says the word Messiah, what she means by that is the Old Testament word of Meshua, which means anointed one, the promised one that is promised in the Old Testament many times in the Psalms and in the prophets. What she is looking for in a Messiah, she is looking for a priest, a prophet, and a king. So what does Jesus do in verse 26? Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What does he do? He kind of just connects all the dots for her. That she has been thirsty. That she is looking for men to quench her soul. And that this guy named the Messiah, the Meshua, the anointed one that she has been looking for, that the Jews have been looking for since Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, that this Messiah is he. He is Jesus. She realizes in that moment, in when the dots connect, that not only is he the Messiah, but that he is the truly the only one that can satisfy her thirst for God. But then notice her reaction very quickly, verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? So the very thing she came for was physical thirst, has in a sense been quenched by her spiritual truth that she has now found Jesus Christ as Savior of her life. So we see here that Jesus initiates, he confronts her lies with truth, he reveals the truth that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world, and then how do we know, how do we know that she believed? How do we know that she actually turned to Jesus Christ? Because we don't see a a sinner's prayer, we don't see a confession of faith. How do we actually know she became a Christian on that day? Verse 39. It's transformation, step number four. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. 
And he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they who were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. The way that we know she became a Christian was because of transformation. Life change. The only way we know, truly, that she actually became a follower of Christ was because of the change in her life. Listen to me. I'm about to step on some theological thin ice, okay? I am not saved by good works, but because I am saved, I do good works. I am not saved by works, but because I am saved, I do good works. A Christian, say then, a Christian that believes in Jesus and has no change is not changed. Why do I say that? Because every time I look in the scripture, I look at the story of Nicodemus, I look at Zacchaeus, I look at even in the criminal on the cross, I look at the Samaritan woman. Every time we know somebody became a follower of Jesus Christ, there was no prayer of salvation, there was no, I believe, there was some of that there, but there's no prayer of salvation. There's no coming forward, there's no sign a little pamphlet. How do we know that these people came to believe? It's because of the life change in their life. I am not saved by works, but because I am saved, I do good works. So what is Jesus' plan for evangelism? Initiation, confrontation, revelation, and then watch for a transformation. Watch for a change in their life. That's the only way we know if somebody has come to believe. Uh, now, as I was preparing this message, I realized that this was uh, like drinking from a fire hose. I realized that I could have probably broken up this one sermon into eight. Um, I do realize also that this process is not easy, it's not imperfect, and I also do realize by worldly standards that Jesus was not the best evangelist. Why do I say that? Think about the end of his life. He ministered to all these people, shared the gospel to all of these people. He had 12 dedicated followers and only one person remained when he passed. The reason I share these four steps is, and I'm not saying that these are going to be the best, you're going to light the world on fire. I'm just trying to discover with you all, how did Jesus actually share the gospel and let us do it the way he did it? Before I close, allow me to just talk with you. You know, this sermon is not meant to guilt you. It's not meant to shame you. It's not meant to make you feel inadequate. It's meant basically to just put a tool in your tool belt on how to actually communicate the love of God to the lost and dying world. My question for you is, who is the face that comes to mind? Who is a person in your life? It could be a friend. It could be a family member. It could be a coworker. Could be someone at school. Who is somebody in your life that you know is not a believer in Jesus Christ? Question number two is really why do you hesitate to share? We all hesitate to share. You're not alone. We all fear evangelism. Sometimes I think it's easier to share the gospel with a thousand people than it is to share the gospel with even one person. But God does not we do not have to have all the education. We do not have to have it all together. We do not have to be brave enough. We just need to be dependent on the Spirit and to go and share the gospel and let leave the results to Him. 
And really my third question is, is that will we go? Will we go and will we trust God despite our sense of inadequacy? Despite our sense of fear? You know, as I search the scripture, as I preach more and more and more, the idea that blows me away, there's a lot of them, but one idea that absolutely blows me away is that the sovereign God of the universe wants to use you and me for his purposes. That he wants to invite me in to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has come, Jesus has come and he has died to pay for my sin, that if I believe in him, that I will be saved. It blows my mind that he wants to use you. And, and think about it, friends. Whoever you are, wherever you may be watching, if Jesus can use a lowly fisherman, one that was uneducated, one that was an outcast of society, one that did not have it all together, someone that betrayed Jesus in his last days. If God can use him, then God can use you and any one of us. So, let us, and I'm saying this to myself as well, let us go boldly. Let us not cower in fear Let us not cower in not knowing enough, but let us just go and share the gospel to the ends of the earth. Friends, a Christian who tells others about Jesus is one that sees people as Jesus sees sees people. That God loves all, that God does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. A Christian who tells others about Jesus is a Christian who shows love. Love enough to share, love enough to even confront sometimes a false idea of righteousness. A Christian who tells others about Jesus should not be motivated by ego, but motivated by a love for God and a desire to glorify Him. And a Christian who goes, who is unashamed, who is fearless, a Christian who goes will be the salt of the earth, a person that creates a thirst for the things of God and the darkness of the world. And a Christian who goes and shares the gospel will be somebody who is the light of the world, revealing the light that is inside them, revealing the truth of the gospel to all they see. Let us go and share Jesus to all we meet. Allow me to share with you a quote. Um, it's just awesome thought. If you're unsure of Jesus, if you're unsure of the gospel, of all the stuff I've said today, if you're unsure that Jesus is really Savior of the world, if you're unsure that you really do have spiritual thirst, just listen to what I have to say from a man named J.I. Packer. He says this, Man without Christ is a guilty sinner, answerable to God for breaking his laws. That is why we need the gospel. When he hears the gospel, when one hears the gospel, he is responsible for the decision that he makes about it. It sets before him a choice. It sets before you a choice between life and death. And this momentous choice is the most momentous choice any man can ever make. 
If you do not know Jesus Christ, as I always share whenever I close, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then I would imagine your soul is thirsty. You can keep on stuffing your soul with things, with sin, with intellect, with money, with uncertainty, with doubts, but you will be looking the rest of your life for something that will quench your inner spirit. Jesus is the answer to the thirst in your soul, that if you would believe in him, that you would be saved. If you've never believed in him, then trust in him as your Lord and Savior and surrender to him. But, prove it. Yes, we are not saved by works, but because I'm saved, we do good works. Prove. Prove that you're a Christian. Go and tell others about Jesus then, sharing the gospel to all you see. Bow with me in a word of prayer, and then I will close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity that we come together and just uh, lead us in worship this morning. Lord, thank you for all those that have just worked so hard and just uprooted all of their schedules to make this possible. Lord, I just pray that we as Christians will be bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would live differently. And Lord, I just pray that... um, Lord, that if someone does not know and does not trust you as Savior, they would believe in you and be saved. And Lord, I pray for the change that comes in their life, that they would then go be like the Samaritan woman who goes and shares the gospel to the ends of the earth and brings many other people to know him. Lord, I thank you for the support of this church. And Lord, I just pray for safety in this time for all. I pray for security. Lord, I pray that we would trust you in this time. Lord, I pray that we would be wise as well. And Lord, I just thank you that we can come together and worship even through uh, the internet. Lord, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.